0: Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Detour Life. Detour Life is a game changer for both family law professionals and clients alike. Detour Life is an innovative online program which guides clients to easily input and organize the exhaustive document and financial disclosure process and provides professionals with streamlined and secure case management. In addition, Detour Life has comprehensive client onboarding, a secure document repository, income and expense sync, parenting plan agreement features, and much more. I use Detour Life myself, and honestly one of my favorite features, and one that my clients love as well, is that they can securely link all of their financial accounts directly to the Detour Life platform so that their information is automatically uploaded and updated as time goes on. So whether you're getting a divorce or are a divorce professional, I urge you to check it out yourself. Go to detourlife, that's D-T-O-U-R dot L-I-F-E, and sign up for their free 14-day trial. Then use code SUSAN20 to get 20% off the cost of subscription. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast.
1: Abusers very often do not take responsibility for doing anything wrong. Abusers very often do not apologize. Abusers very often don't say, how can I fix this? What did I do wrong? Victims ask those questions all the time. Victims always are asking, what could I do to fix this? How did I make him so angry? What is it about me that I need to change? Or I'm so sorry.
0: Hello and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. Hello, and welcome back to part two of my discussion with Dr. Christine Cociola on coercive control, issues of intimate partner violence, and gosh, a myriad of topics. For those of you who have not listened to Monday's episode, please go back and start there. We really laid some of the foundation for what coercive control is. Um, it's such a, a breadth of a topic that we knew we were going to need to have two episodes. Honestly, we could do an entire podcast. I mean, and I mean like an entire podcast of, of <laughs> episodes on the topic. But Dr. Cochiola is an expert in the area as well as being a survivor, of course of control and abuse herself. And that is why I am so happy that she's here to join us again. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you so much Susan. So when we left off um, in episode one, we were talking about that dangerous time of leaving an abuser and the fact that I think you said it takes seven is it seven times? Yes, yeah, seven times that someone will make the attempt and before they they are able to do to separate. And part of the reason for that is I believe it was it was a high percentage, 90 percent, 80 percent of cases once 90. okay, that's a pretty high percentage. 90 percent of cases when the separation happens, that's when the post separation abuse starts, which is an even higher level of abuse. So let's start there and just explain to people by what you mean, because it's a relatively new phrase in the in the common vernacular i would say around family law what you mean and what you describe as post separation abu- abuse
1: sure so let me i just want to be clear about a couple of things so on average it takes 7 attempts right on average and that coercive control as the foundation of most domestic abuse when that occurs when the victim has decided to leave 90% of cases will experience post-separation abuse. What that means is the coercive control intensifies. And I think we left off on last on last episode talking a little bit about the characterological issues of these abusers. And I always like to talk about how someone would be able to tell, um, I hope I'm not giving away any secrets, but how someone would be able to tell if someone is an abuser or a victim, right? Yeah. Because so abusers very often do not take responsibility for doing anything wrong. Abusers very often do not apologize. Abusers very often don't say, how can I fix this? What did I do wrong? Victims ask those questions all the time. Victims always are asking, you know, what could I do to fix this? How did I make him so angry? You know, what is it about me that I need to change? Or I'm so sorry. We saw that with Gabby Petito, right?
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So she was like the iconic, unfortunately, um, example of what a victim does. He's very calm and cool, collected, you know, like off to the side, not saying that he did anything wrong, even though he had been, later on we hear he had been hitting her and we have video of that. She's apologizing profusely. She's sobbing, saying, I'm so sorry, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. She's actually making amends for him. Mm -hmm. And so that would be. How we look at the differences, and I think court personnel. I'm actually doing some trainings now in the state of Connecticut because we did pass Jennifer's Law in October of 2021, which codifies coercive control as a form of domestic violence. We're doing trainings now because we want attorneys to understand the differences. Because if you have someone come into your office, how do you know, right? Especially right. if they're very well put together and you know, a guidance counselor, you know, I mean, um, there's just like, you wouldn't think that people who work in mental health may actually have significant mental health issues, right? Yes.
0: Well, and you, you, you this is your area of
1: expertise, yet you had a hard time seeing that you were a victim yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say that when people think about post-separation abuse, what they have to understand is that the abuser, because he has lost that control, and remember, regarding the characterological issues, that Ability to control helps him feel less shame. So when he is not in control, he returns to those very young ego injuries that he had. He had significant ego injuries. And when he returns to those, he becomes filled with rage. He has to prevent himself from going there and seeing that himself as he truly is. And so that unfortunately becomes, you know, stalking. It becomes use of the children. It becomes, I'm going to drop the children off an hour late or I won't bring, I won't be picking them up today. It becomes abuse of, in some ways, abuse of the victim more so, and abuse of the children, because whoever is involved, we actually oftentimes in these cases will see uh, situations of animal abuse too at a higher rate. I, there was a study, I should mention this study in 2008, where uh, Vites and Sorensen, they took a, a period of 18 months in California when back in the day we used to have the ability to actually access these resources. And they took um, 18 months of cases of domestic violence and they had 231 victims. And out of the 231, a fifth of them um, were murdered two days after re- receiving their restraining order. So we say to victims over and over again leave, get a restraining order. Why didn't you? I attempted to get a restraining order three times. All three times went to the court and then at, did all the paperwork. And before they called the sheriff and the marshal to do the serving, I reneged because I knew it would only get worse. I was petrified that it would get worse. We expect victims to behave a certain way, but the system does not support that. Um, and that's 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 a huge problem that we have, that the system isn't supporting victims in the way that they should be supported. You mentioned, and I just wanted to highlight this,
0: Jennifer's law passed in Connecticut. You are in Connecticut. I used to practice in Connecticut. Connecticut. And, you know, I'm proud of Connecticut for it. I think it's only the third state in our country that has recognized coercive control as a form of domestic abuse and has now included it as one of the potential reasons for getting a restraining order. In the past, and I'm an attorney in Connecticut, what I used to have to say to a client when they wanted a restraining order was, you have to be in fear of imminent physical harm from someone, or you couldn't get it. You couldn't get it. You had to be afraid they were going to hurt you physically. But now coercive control is within the definition of abuse so that it's broadened it, you know, quite a bit to what can come in there. But I love to hear that you're also now educating our judges and our court staff and our attorneys because frankly, this is not something I knew about, as I said in the first episode, when I practiced there. And I, I know I saw instances of it. I, I know it was in my office, in my courtroom, in my my practice, but there was no name for it and no understanding of it, at least for me. You mentioned this goes back to 1970, um, the original
1: uh,
0: study and designation
1: so I'm not educating judges because that was part of getting the law passed was that we had to remove that from the law because judges don't feel the need to be <laughs> trained in this area. And, and lawyers are not mandated either. They are. I, I am getting invited in for lunch and learn, which I'm taking that hour of time, and I'm happy to come in and do that. For anybody listening, I'm happy to do that with anyone, anywhere, and just for free. Like I just am trying to educate. I mean, we had 11 hours of testimony in the state of Connecticut and we had Evan Rachel Wood, who um, you're probably familiar has the new uh, Sundance film Phoenix Rising. And yes. And now probably is going to be at risk of being uh, having a defamation lawsuit. Also, we had her there. We had Laura Richards, who is the co-creator of the Dirty John podcast and the Dirty John Netflix series. We had a lot of powerhouses, including Evan Stark, the international expert. And we still had eleven hours of testimony, and we still had pushback because people did not want this to happen. Washington State has just passed their law too, so now we have four states, which is really great. And Massachusetts is on deck, and so is Rhode Island. So. I think it is beginning to take uh, footing, which is really fantastic. But again, as Alex Kazer says, who actually was the promoter of our, she actually um, put forth our bill here in Connecticut. She says, uh, it doesn't do us any good to have a law unless it's being enforced. And I recall, I'll just give a little snippet of a personal example. Going to court because I did not have the title of my car. When my car was originally purchased, my ex went to pick it up at the dealer. I didn't think there was anything insidious going on and maybe there wasn't. But at the time of the divorce, for a whole year leading up to it, I was supposed to get the title of that car because it was that was I was getting that in the divorce, the car, right. an older car, but I was getting it. And I had to go to court the January after my divorce in July for contempt. It was the third time I brought him in for contempt because I still didn't have the title of my car. He never showed up. I was reprimanded by the judge. Ms. Cochiola, why do you keep coming back here? Your Honor, I don't have the title of my car. Ms. Cochiola, your divorce was final in July. That should have been brought up then. So this is an example of the coercive control in the court system. And that's just a. My gosh, that's that's just my yeah. car. I had another car. Like I ended up not using this first car because I knew it was tracked, but I wanted the title so I could sell it. Right. And that's just a, such a small example of how this happens. And so sad that victims aren't supported in a place where we are, expect that they would be in the judicial system.
0: Wrong, well, wrong,
1: right? <laughs> well, and they call it family
0: court and they, it's supposed to be a place where you can, you know, court, people think of court and justice. Unfortunately, the family court is very ill-prepared to deal with um, a lot of the issues that they find coming through the doors. This is Probably at the top of the list, frankly, for what and I'm sorry to hear that you're not educating our judges and whatever uh, ability I have to uh, put a voice to that, I will. And I do want to encourage my colleagues out there. I have a number of colleagues who listen to the show. I encourage you all reach out to Dr. Christine. She'll do a lunch and learn for your local group on coercive control and, you know, some of the things that we're talking about, share this podcast episode. You know, that is why we are talking about this. It needs to be talked about so that people will understand and that it will then start to maybe hopefully not just be passed as laws, but I think it's important to note, yes, it needs to also be enforced. You know, Mm -hmm. it needs to and it needs to be understood. And I do think that's part of the problem here is because you can see a bruise, We have, you know, we're in a courtroom, we're trained to look at evidence, right? Evidence is a bruise. Evidence is a black eye. Evidence is a broken arm. We can see those things for abuse. So the legal world, we're comfortable understanding the evidentiary role of that. We can see a picture of it. We can see the person standing in front of us. It is much harder to see coercive control. And that's why education is so important.
1: Absolutely. And I would say that judges are human and lawyers are human. And frankly, there's people among all of us that don't really want to believe this abuse happens or don't really understand it. So why why is it that uh, we like, just in general, if judges could be a little more filled maybe with humility and understand that they are human just like the rest of us and lawyers are human like the rest of us. And this idea that a lot of us don't get it. It's so hard to see. And just like we don't get it, you may not get it. And that's the conversation. It's not about you're horrible because you don't see it, it's that you're human <laughs> and it's difficult to see.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's why I'm actually being very clear with the fact that although I've been in the family law system for 32 years as a in various roles. I did not know what this was, and I suspect was not fully supportive in places where I should have been, nor fully protective in other situations where I might have played a bigger role in my role as an attorney or a mediator or a special master because I did not know. So let me be very clear. I did not know. I'm trying to know. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, this, these episodes so much, Listeners, if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please visit www.thehotline.org. That is the website for National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can also call them at 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E, which is 7233, 1-800-799-7233. They have all kinds of help, they have resources, they have plans for safety, and there are ways that you can help others. So please visit the National Domestic Violence Hotline at hotline.org. Stay tuned for more from Christine Cocciola as we delve deeper into the issues of intimate
1: partner violence and post-separation abuse. When we talk about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, what we know is that oftentimes we become dysregulated, we're emotionally reactive versus responsive, that we may become frozen and unable to respond. There's so many different ways. This is the brain's way of coping.
0: If you're enjoying this episode, check out last week's show with Vasya Sarantapoulou, the founder of Anti-Loneliness, as she shares her tips on why we're lonely, And what we can do about it. Loneliness is not something
1: that happens to you only when you are an elderly person. It happens to you when you change country, you move to a new city, you move to a new job, you are a single parent. There's
0: so many cases when we become, we feel lonely, but we haven't resonated with that. We haven't felt that, okay, wow, this is so normal. I experience that so often. And now we return to today's show. You also talk about something, I think it was complex PTSD, and this has been coming up a lot in the current case that's ongoing right now as we're taping this of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Whether Amber is suffering from PTSD or she actually has personality disorders, it's kind of the battle, at least from a legal sense, it's kind of the battle of the experts between his experts and hers. Tell us a little bit about complex PTSD and, and how that plays in to this entire system here?
1: Sure. So I think, so a lot of us are familiar with the terminology PTSD and PTSD typically is something that well, we began using it in particular, right? After wars, right? Yes. This idea we used to call combat fatigue and other names for it. And this idea that there may be an incident in your life that was traumatic and it creates a lot of other manifestations in your reactions in life. So um, complex PTSD is when this happens over and over and over again. And so I would say that victims of domestic abuse, very likely many have complex PTSD because there is a, a, a reoccurring abuse. The interesting part is that the research is showing us over and over again that physical abuse, is horrifying. No question about it. However, the trauma in the brain when it is non-physical, so when children are maybe never get physically abused, but their mother calls them stupid over and over again, or you'll never amount to anything, that that trauma in the brain is much more significant. And the reason is, is because we can't put our finger on it, right? Right. It's that same idea of not being able to see it. It's not recognized by others. We don't recognize it. Therefore, the brain, that impact is that much more significant. And so complex post-traumatic stress disorder, again, assuming that many victims, if not most, have suffered it when they've been in these abusive relationships, is, is something that creates oftentimes an emotional dysregulation. So the brain is living in a space of fight, flight, fight, 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 flight, freeze, or fawn. And so um, a lot of people, fawn is kind of a new terminology that's out there, but that means being just like whatever you want, right? How many times do we know victims just do whatever he wants, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's that subjugation. That's that um, intersection, I believe, of coercive control and subjugation where, you know, you're a giving person, you're trying to accommodate, you fawn a lot. You just do what the other person wants to make them happy and to keep the peace. But when the brain is in that state, the amygdala is fired up. And when the brain... So I I guess I think a really good example of this would be to think about children in school. You know, we all can recall or think of examples of children in school who maybe became extremely angry or frustrated and, you know, through something. That child's brain their amygdala is fired up and they're reacting. The limbic system is, is dysregulated. It's just reacting. Or the kid in school who's really quiet and who is not, is not able to like interact in class, is not socially engaged, right? So that would be like maybe the freeze, right? Like just not doing anything. The brain is unable to regulate. And when the brain is not regulated, people are reacting and people react in ways that maybe they wouldn't want to react. It just happens. And so if someone is abusing you over and over again, and you are in this space with them, and now you begin to realize something's wrong, I don't like this in your brain, instead of freezing or fawning, right? Your brain actually reacts. Now, all of a sudden, the abuser is able to call you the abuser, isn't he? He's flipping the narrative on you, right? And so your abuser always traps you in the laundry room when he's upset. He come, You're in the laundry room. He comes in. He has to talk to you. He, it's, it's a small, confined space. You're, you're frozen. You can't do anything. But maybe that one time you're like, this is it, and you push him or you you push him to get away from the door and he hits his arm and he has a bruise from the door, not from you. And now all of a sudden you are the abuser. And so, so I would say that when we talk about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, what we know is that oftentimes we become dysregulated, we're emotionally reactive versus responsive, that we may become frozen and unable to respond. There's so many different ways. This is the brain's way of coping. And that if we can look at it in that way, and again, I'm going to go back to this, I think I talked about it in your first episode, the difference between an abuser and the victim is that the the victim may do this one time, but then also probably be apologetic, probably say, I'm sorry, I did that, I didn't mean to do that. Where the perpetrator will continually humiliate them over and over again for doing that and then use that one incident versus their 200 right. to highlight to highlight that you are an abuser. When we think about the Heard-Depp case, I feel like we're talking about someone who was really young, considerably younger, that's already suggesting a power differential. Somebody who has significant fame, there were some bad behaviors We can call them bad behaviors by Amber, but the idea that her behaviors are being so highlighted and he had horrifying behaviors where he was threatening her life and they are not being highlighted to the same degree. That's pretty sad. I think that's a pretty sad testament because of the society we live in.
0: People seem pretty ready to jump on the... um... Johnny Depp is an abuse victim train, I've been seeing quite a bit of. You know, the whole um, issue with um, the complex PTSD and the fact that, you know, it's sort of cumulative, right? It's like somebody going through trauma over and over and over again. Does it build as well? So does it, you know, the trauma, 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 whether it's a big trauma or a little trauma, it, it, it has to have a major effect on someone even when they get away from the ongoing traumas right so that so now they're in a safe place but they don't feel safe
1: do they No, no. And I think what you're highlighting is really important because I think if we can talk about it in relationship to children, and then it it segues into this idea of adult, but we've all heard probably by now of the adverse childhood experiences study, right? And and the idea that um, this is the largest American Medical Association study that no one was talking about 10 years ago. And the idea that the more adverse childhood experiences we have From a medical perspective, the shorter life we have, which is just utterly amazing, right? Right. But let me just give this little caveat. The brain can heal. I'll come back to that. The brain can heal, which is really fantastic. So you take a child who lived in a domestically violent situation, coercive control, insidious, didn't really know what was going on. And I would say that that's one of the conversations that I'm really trying to push forward is that children are not witnesses or exposed to, they are victims of. In that home, they are victims of, they have learned to regulate their behavior just very much like the adult victim has. Mm -hmm. So they figure out how to maneuver relationships in that household that benefit them. How do I keep safest? So sometimes for them, the perception is the safest parent is the abuser because the abuser has more power and the victim is weak. She appears, can't protect in the same way. So I'm going to align with the abuser. And you know what that might mean? That might mean that I'm going to call mom names when the abuser calls mom names, right? I'm, I'm assuming mom is protective. I call her still the protective parent because she is. But she's not showing up that way yet. We have to get her. And that's part of a program that I'm, I'm starting in August is this idea that how do we help moms to show up to their children in a protective way? And that means they have to be able to minimize their traumatic responses.
0: Right.
1: I call yep. it traumatic. So they have traumatic reactions. They have to have traumatic they, have, they can have responses. Responses are very different than reactions. And I think I'm getting a little bit off of your question a little bit there. Um, so the idea that children, what we know about ACEs also, though, not only shorter lifespan, but that it impacts cognitive processing. So wait a minute, a child in school, and they're not able to focus, they may have what looks like ADHD responses, or they may have some oppositional defiant behaviors that could be their trauma. And so they're not learning the same way. And we know this already children who are victims of abuse. And, and let me just say that they keep, we are too often looking at child abuse and domestic violence as siloed issues. When we know research shows us, and these are pretty, um, like vast, I don't like the statistics, but 30 to 60% of children who live in domestic violence experience child abuse. That's physical abuse, right? What about the psychological abuse? I think that number has to be so significantly high, if not a hundred percent, if not a hundred percent, if I am watching this go on in my home, I am a victim of psychological maltreatment, that's the, the correct terminology because it is not just abuse, which is, we can see, but it might be covert. It might be covert. It doesn't have to be overt, right? I, I may not be calling you stupid, but I might be telling you that your mother can't be trusted. That's covert psychological abuse. Maltreatment is what we call it in the, in the field. So so these children are having difficulty cognitive, cognitive processing. So are victims of domestic abuse. The, co- the complex post-traumatic stress does not allow the brain the ability to process information at the same rate in the same quantity. Okay. And then you don't get the same quality. So therefore, when we ask why do victims go back or why does he have to, why does he say one good thing? Because the brain attaches to that. The brain holds on to that. That makes the brain feel good. The brain is in such trauma that the brain doesn't want anything bad. If the brain doesn't want anything bad, then aren't you going to forget about or dismiss or minimize, push away? Children do the same thing. Adults do the same thing. Going back to the brain healing, when a child, remember, I think I may have said this again in the previous episode, but if, if you can leave and if it's safe for you to leave and you feel that you have the ability to do so. Your child has the best chance at a path to freedom, a path to being able to deregulate all of those emotional reactions, being able to feel safe. The amygdala shrinks with trauma. The amygdala will actually grow again. It, there is, is resiliency. Neuroscience is showing us over and over again that the most important thing for a child is a positive, strong, unconditional, loving re- attachment to a primary caretaker. You can't be that when you're living in the abuse. You can't be. You can yeah. be that if you're not living in the abuse.
0: You know, we, maybe we should have made it a three-parter, but you know, one of the good things I know you've already said, you would come back and we can do a follow-up episode on this, but I want to talk about, cause you mentioned that you are doing a program, um, a protective parenting program. And I want to talk about that because I know that this is a place of true concern and fear for so many parents, mothers mostly, but parents who have left an abusive situation, but now need to parent their children. And you've just talked about, you know, all of the issues that children face when they've lived in an abusive household. What are a few tips that you can give someone? And I'll I'll have all the information for your program, but what are a few tips you can give somebody to to be a protective parent?
1: Yeah, so I would say that one of the most important things, and and I should just say that, so I experienced this with my children. So I not only come with a trauma-informed lens and as a social worker my entire life and having an experience, experience in this field, but also finding out when I did finally leave my abuser, that when my children were 9 and 10, he began to tell them that I was unstable, that I couldn't be trusted. So for about eight or nine years of their earliest development, they were being impacted by the coercive controller. So I understand what people have experienced. I can, I can truly empathize. I would say that one of the most important things that we can do is when our children are triggering us because of their behaviors, either they don't believe us, they may call us names, they may say, you don't do that for me, dad does this for me. Those are all like triggering events, right? I want you to really, I want your listeners who have had this, are having this experience to really think about their children at three or think about that baby in your arms. Because what's happened is The child has been, is like a soldier sometimes to the abuser. They're being used as a pawn. And if we could go back and think about those earliest, fondest memories, in some ways, we can begin to see the the child themselves. See, what's happened is we're not seeing, the abuser doesn't see our child at all. They are totally not seeing who that child really is. And remember, how did the abuser become an abuser? He was shamed for being who he was. So the most important thing we can do is see our child for who they really are, not who they are pretending to be as a soldier to the abuser. And I want you to go back to that really amazing love and attachment because that attachment will never, ever go away. That attachment is truly your child's saving grace. That's going to be what gets them to healthy. So, go back to that. That would be number one. And when that child walks in the door with their attitude or their negative behaviors, I want you to go back and think about them as that young, beautiful baby you held in your arms. You know their heart better than anyone. So, that's number one. Number two is when they do something wrong, something bad, we'll call it bad, something horrible, because sometimes they do horrible things. I want you to begin to become responsive rather than reactive. Everything that comes out of their mouth, every single thing they are doing is not personal. They are a soldier. They are doing what they are told to do. They truly love you. You have that deep attachment. Every single thing is because they are being made. To do it. That's really important. So don't respond if you can. Ignore it if you can. What you don't want to do is say, I can't believe you just said that to me. And I'll tell you why. Their egos are compromised, right? When we tell them not to do that, we are telling them in some ways they are bad. And that's exactly what they're afraid of. They are petrified that they don't have the abuser's love for real. And the abuser has made them think, or you, by your reactions, has made them think that you don't love them unconditionally. We can't do that. That's an injury to their ego. We have to minimize how we respond or react to them. And we have to respond or not respond at all. We have to depersonalize everything they say to us. So I don't know if that was three
0: things, but
1: those no. are. Well, and they're,
0: they're <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm thinking through like all of the instances in, in my past as a step-parent, I could just see so many instances where you can see that that phrase, they are a soldier. Is just, I mean, talk about something taking a knife to your heart. But if you can remember that in those moments, because you get so emotional when they, you know, I remember times where a child would open their mouth and what was coming out was not a child's voice um, Mm -hmm. or not a child's words and thoughts in a child's voice. So, I, this i think your program is going to be a lifesaver for so many people just those those tips are are something that can give hope and some insight so tell us a little bit more about your program i know it, it's going to come out in august tell us about the program and then where people are going to be able to to find it
1: yeah so i would say that they can go to i know your and they can get on my early interest email list if they're interested it's going to be about 8 weeks but what i'm realizing is it's not enough time people will meet with me We'll do a lesson and they'll have homework once a week and then we'll have a group and we'll meet together as a group to process some of what's happened during the week. So it's kind of like having, I think, I hope it's going to kind of be like having psychoeducation and a therapist one in the same me, doing both for people. And so it's like having therapy twice a week. And again, the psychoeducation aspect of it. And and really, it's about unpacking your own trauma as a protective parent. But we're doing that quickly so that I can get you to the relationship with your child. And what I realize as I'm creating it is, and of course, as a clinician, I know this, we need so much time to unpack trauma. So I'm sure there'll be a follow-up program that will be more about unpacking your personal trauma. And then I hope ideally, what I would really love, Susan, is to have a group, a course. And, and by the way, another one, uh, one and a half hour course is just going to be on red flags of unhealthy relationships that moms and parent par- protective parents and their children can do with their kids, just a one hour, one and a half hour program, because really we have to start nipping this in the bud right. and, and teaching younger people at a younger age. And I run a program at my college to do this. And it's, It really makes a difference when we talk about it. And then I guess as a final thought is just this idea that to have a program for young people who have had their aha moment, my dad is an abuser. And let me just say this, my program, we talk all about loss and grief because this is such a traumatic loss either for the protective parent and for the children. So ideally having a program for adolescents would be, that's my goal. To get there to have a program for young people, I hope for your
0: everyone's sake that that all of those programs will be available, and I know that they're going to help people. I am thrilled that you have the one coming in August because I I know that people who are listening right now bells are going off. You talk about psychoeducation; it's so important to understand what's happening, but it's also under once you know what's happening, it's also important to understand what you can do because that's where your hope is. So there's awareness, which is the first step, and then there's what you can do. And that's the hope.
1: Agreed. Thank you for saying that so well. Yes.
0: Every Everything I do on this show is always, you know, awareness is at, my, is at the core because if we're not aware, how do we know that we need to change something? But then I, I want people to have actual takeaways. And you just gave some beautiful ones for, for mothers or parents who are in that place of you know, really wanting to help their children as they, you know, really are not the most lovable little human beings screaming at us and or, or whatever that might be. Recognizing the trauma in the face of your infant, you know, that that little adorable infant that you held however many years ago. Um, is is the start. So thank you so much for coming on and creating these two episodes with me. I truly appreciate it. I appreciate everything that you're doing and your advocacy in this space. I think it's such an important topic and I'm very grateful. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me and protective moms out there. Please just know that you can make a difference. You can show your children a path to freedom. You really can. That says it all.
0: I'm going to have links to all of Dr. Cochiola's programs, her websites, her social media in the show notes, please go and follow up with her. But again, thank you so much, Christine. Thank you.